You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. And a good word that is. Matthew chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be really helpful to have that out and open there on your lap for you to be able to follow along with and read. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just say a couple of things uh, to get us started this morning. One, if you are a new visitor today, thank you so much for being here. We are praying that the living God would speak to you in in ways that would be just so helpful for your soul this morning and encouraging for you. And so what we're asking the Lord for that. And if you would just make sure at some point during the service, I'm in the seat back in front of you, there should be a black connect card. And if you'll just grab that card, fill that out. At the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket. And if you'll put that card filled out in that basket, or you can uh, put that even better than the basket, at the connect table, just right on the other side of that wall, once the service is over, you can take it out there. They'll exchange that card for a little gift for you. So if you would do that, that would help us follow up with you and serve you going forward, which we would love to do that. So if you would uh, fill that card out, that would be great. And for anyone in the room, if you have any prayer requests that you would like for your church family to pray um, on your behalf, intercede for you, you can fill out that green card that says prayer requests on it, put that in the offering basket at the end of the service, And uh, we would just find it to be such a joy to be able to pray and intercede on your behalf as your church family. So if you want to do that, that would be great too. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let me uh, just clue you into one uh, kind of bigger thing happening right now in, in our church. Back in January, we did a family meeting and we laid out some of our priorities for 2019. And one of those priorities was Stonegate Equip. Stonegate Equip. And the reason uh, Stonegate Equip is a priority for us in 2019 is because your development is a priority for us in 2019. We want to do everything we can to help you be the person God has called you to be, to equip you to, to become that. And so Stonegate Equip is designed to sit in between two big things that we do. One is our Sunday morning services like this. So think about what this is. This is a lot of people in one room. It's monologue. It's, it's really one-way communication. So Stonegate Equip sits in between this kind of moment, our Sunday morning services, and our groups. Think about what our groups are. They are much smaller mo- moment. Um, a lot of our familial values, like you being a part of a church family happen in our groups. You are prayed for, you are cared for. All of those sort of things happen in our group, uh, in our groups. And then Stonegate Equip sits right in between those two. And think about what it gets to do. It's a medium-sized uh, group in a classroom focused on content. So it's not a place for you to be cared for. It's a place for you to be able to learn the Bible, uh, do some of those sort of things. It's meant to be a dialogue, not a monologue like this sort of a moment is. And, uh, and they, they come in like four to six weeks sort of bursts. So they're going to be four to six weeks on, then we'll take some time off and then do another round of four to six weeks. So our first round of that begins in mid-April, mid-April. And so we just want to encourage you toward that. They're going to be on Tuesday nights, and the first three we're going to do, so this round in April of Stone Get Equip, will have three classes in it. Um, one of those is Gospel Foundations. How do you apply the gospel to your everyday life? We could all use help in that. It's just Discipleship 101. How do we apply the good news of Jesus to all of life? Gospel Foundations. Uh, the second class we'll do is the Gospel and Evangelism, or the Gospel and Mission. We're just going to try to, to do some work in helping equip our church family to be better missionaries of Jesus. And the third one is going to be a Bible study on Galatians chapter 3 um, called Christian Righteousness. Christian Righteousness. So we just want to encourage you to be a part of that. Those are really good opportunities for you to grow and to be equipped in, in your walk with God. So all of those are up online. So you can go to stonegate.church, go to upcoming events, 
and you'll see the registration for each of those three equip classes starting in mid-April. So take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, They're there for you, for your development, so we just would love to see you uh, jump into those opportunities. Okay, today we are taking another step in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's three chapters, Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. It's Jesus' longest recorded sermon. In a lot of ways, it just brings us face-to-face with the risen Jesus. And in this sermon, Jesus, face-to-face with us, is telling us about what life with him looks like, what it looks like to follow him, to to live with him. Uh, He's the king. He has a kingdom. We're part of his kingdom, and it's, he's telling us, this is what life inside my kingdom looks like. This is what it looks like to be a follower of mine. Now, if you think about the entirety of, of his sermon, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, the first 16 verses of chapter 5, you could think of those as the introduction to the sermon. That's his introduction. He begins with the Beatitudes, and in the Beatitudes, he's showing us what sort of a culture our doctrine should create. A gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture, and those Beatitudes explain and show us what that gospel culture should be. So, so gospel doctrine should create or produce a gospel culture called the church. And that culture, that, that, that church, should adorn the, the doctrine. It should make the doctrine look beautiful. It should make the doctrine sing. Then in verse 13 through 16, he uses two metaphors, salt and light. And then he gets down to his point in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In verse 16, Jesus bestows dignity on our daily lives. He's looking at us and saying, your life matters. The way you live, what you do, what you don't do, it doesn't kind of matter. It doesn't sort of matter. It really, really matters. His point is our lives are to be seen so that Jesus can be savored. The purpose of your life is for people to see your life, or even better, to see through your life all the way to the God who stands behind it. To see through your life all the way to Jesus. That's the purpose of our life. This is why our lives are so important. Then when you get to verse 17 of Matthew 5, you have now entered the body of the sermon. This is the main content. This is the big thing. He's he's starting, he's introducing the big concept he wants to get after in verse 17. Uh, In a lot of ways, you could take these opening four verses of the body, 17 through 20, And these four verses set the stage for everything else that follows in the sermon. Everything else that follows, you can trace back to this moment, starting the body of the sermon, and what he's introducing in these four verses. So I want to take these four verses in two parts. Two parts. Jesus' work is the first part. Jesus' warning is the second part. So we've got Jesus' work, that's verses 17 and 18. Uh, Jesus' warning, verses 19 and 20. So we'll start with Jesus' work. So in verse 17, Jesus is anticipating a question. And if you were a part of that crowd, uh, you know, the audience that's listening to Jesus preach this sermon, it's hard to, uh, it's even hard now for me to tell you and communicate to you how palpable this question would have been to you in that crowd and for the rest of the crowd listening to Jesus. So think about the context. Jesus is Jewish. He's talking to Jewish people. He's calling these Jewish people to come and follow him. And he's presenting to them that he is the king of this kingdom and they should come and be a part of this kingdom. And as to this point, there's been no mention 
to, to Jesus, this Jewish rabbi teacher, talking to these Jewish people, there's been no mention of the law. There's been no mention of the Old Testament yet. And so Jesus is anticipating this question from the crowd. He's anticipating the the question that everybody's asking. So, So Jesus, have you just sort of left the Old Testament behind? Have you just sort of left the law behind? It's like, is what you're teaching a new thing? Or is it a continuation of, uh, of the main thing that's kind of united us as a people all of these years? Jesus, what are you doing? Have you, have you left the law? Have you left the Old Testament behind? So Jesus clarifies. He, he clarifies. He anticipates their question, and, and then he answers it in verses 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, it's important that you, when you hear the word law and the prophets, um, that is code for the entirety of the Old Testament. The law would be considered the first five books of the Bible, uh, the, the books attributed to Moses, and then you've got the prophets that roughly are, it's the rest of the Bible. So the law, or the rest of the Old Testament. So you've got the law or the prophets, the, the entirety of the Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He's saying not, not the smallest letter in the, in the Old Testament, not, not the smallest accent mark of the Old Testament is going to pass away until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is saying, I haven't come to do away with the Old Testament Rather, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, that word fulfill is a big word. It means to to bring to its intended purpose, to to make sense of it. I mean, that is a power-packed word, uh, multifaceted, multilayered. You could do a whole set of sermons uh, working out that word fulfill. So, so what I want to do is just try to give, uh, there's no way I can do it all. I just want to give a primer on that word fulfill. There's a lot more you could say about it, but I think this gets down to the core and the heart of what Jesus is saying. Uh, that word fulfilled, when he's saying, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's saying at least these two things. In saying that, Jesus is saying the Bible is all about me. That the Bible, all of the Bible, Old Testament, the, the whole thing, it's about me. It's about Jesus. This is what the Bible is about. It's about Jesus. Now, when people read the Bible, they start doing really weird things with it. We're we're prone to doing weird things with the Bible. And one of those weird things that we have a tendency to do is to divide the Old and New Testaments as if they don't go together. So we'll separate this one from that one. We have two books that make up the Bible rather than seeing the Old and New Testament as one unified book. But that's not how Jesus sees it. He doesn't see it as two different books. He sees it as, as one whole book, the Bible. All 66 books, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are telling one rich, robust story. That's the way Jesus sees the Bible. It's the story of God rescuing and redeeming a people for his own possession. It's the story of God saving and setting free a people to shine as lights in the universe so that when people see their good or their attractive deeds, they would be drawn to God. It's it's God doing that. This is the scarlet thread that ties Genesis to Revelation together. The, The Bible is all about Jesus. Now, this informs, or at least should inform, how we read the Bible. When you, when you open up, and let's just use the Old Testament as the illustration. When you open up to the Old Testament, 
the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying you should open up to the Old Testament and you should be asking this question, where can you see me in there? In that story, in this text, in that character, how can we get to Jesus? That's the way that we should be reading the Bible. Every page of the Bible, every story of the Bible, every character in the Bible is is leading us to, and it's about Jesus. He's the center of the Bible. But this is not the most common way people read the Bible. The most common way people read the Bible is by moralizing the Bible. And this is a summation of, of how we moralize it. We look at the Bible and we divide it into some neat categories. We look at the Bible and we say, here are the good people, here are the bad people. Don't do what the bad people do and do what the good people do. That, that's moralizing the Bible. But, but here's the thing about the Bible. It refuses to be crunched into those sort of simplistic categories. It won't let you do it. Um, I don't normally look to Homer Simpson for theology. But, but he did say something that is spot on. <laughs> There's this one moment when Ned Flanders gets Homer to read the Bible. And Homer reads it, and he comes back and he reports on what he's read. And, and this is what he says uh, to Ned. He says, everyone in this book's a mess except this one guy. Now, that is great biblical theology. When you read the Bible, that's what you should be thinking. Everyone here is a mess except this, this one guy, except for Jesus. I, th- this is how the Bible helps us see it, that, that everyone in the Bible is in the category of bad, in the, in the category of, of messed up, in the category of in need of salvation. Everyone in the Bible is in that category, save one, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. This is why Sally Lloyd-Jones in her uh, children's Bible says this, every story whispers his name. Every story, every character, every chapter of the Bible is whispering the name of Jesus. And Jesus agrees with this. This is how Jesus sees the Bible, right? If you remember this story in in Luke chapter 24, two men are are going home from Jerusalem and Jesus kind of ambushes them. He he joins them on the road, but they don't don't know who he is when he does it. And Jesus asks them, um, what's wrong with you? And they're like, well, Jesus, have you been like under a rock? Uh, They don't know it's Jesus, but they're talking to Jesus. Have you been under a rock? Uh, Like Jesus just got killed in Jerusalem. That's what's wrong with us. And then Jesus looks at them and said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then listen to what Jesus says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, code for the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus looks back at the Old Testament, um, Jesus sees him. He sees himself. It's all all about him. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, but both Testaments are all about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. This is the way Paul saw the Bible. If you remember in Acts chapter 28, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. People are coming to his house, and this is what it says in Acts 28 uh, verse 23, the, the last half of it. It says, from morning till evening, he, Paul, expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Code word from the Old Testament. In other words, Paul, when Paul is saying, okay, let me tell you about Jesus. 
He picks up the Old Testament. He goes to the Old Testament to say, here's who Jesus is. Now, why does he do that? He does that because the, the way he sees the Bible is both the Old and the New Testament are all about Jesus. So as an illustration of this, when we're teaching the Bible to our, our children um, over in our kids' ministry, they do such a good job over there. Um, here is not what they do over there. They don't hold up all of our beloved you know, Old Testament heroes and say, here are the good guys, follow them, do what they did. That's not how we teach the Bible over there. The way we teach the scriptures is we're honest about their failures, and then we hold up the Old Testament heroes and say, here's how they point to Jesus. Here's what we learn about Jesus from their life. They're all pointers to Jesus. How do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Listen to one guy comment on that. He says it like this. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ is the last Adam who passed his test in a garden and in so doing imputed or gave his righteousness to us to overcome the sin imputed to us to the sin of the first Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abel. When you read the story of Cain and Abel in, in Genesis chapter 4, you should be thinking Jesus, seeing Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, although he was innocent, was slain and whose blood cries out for our acquittal. When Abraham left his father and home, he was doing the same thing that Jesus would do when he left heaven. When Isaac carried his own wood and laid down his life to be sacrificed at the hand of his father Abraham, he was showing us what Jesus would later do. Jesus is the greater Jacob who wrestled with God in Gethsemane and, though wounded and limping, walked away from, from his grave blessed. Jesus is the greater Joseph. When you see the story of Joseph, you should be thinking Jesus. How can we see Jesus here? He, Jesus is the greater Joseph who serves at the right hand of God the King, extends forgiveness and provision to those of us who have betrayed him, and uses his power to save us in loving reconciliation. Jesus is the greater Moses in that he stands as a mediator between God and us. Like Job, innocent Jesus suffered and was tormented by the devil so that God might be glorified. Jesus is a king greater than David. When you think about David in the Old Testament, it's not to lift up David and say, look how great David is. It's to point us to Jesus. Jesus is, the greater, is greater than, than David, who, was sl who has slain our giants of Satan, sin, and death, although in the eyes of the world, he was certain to face a crushing defeat at their hands. Jesus is greater than Jonah in that he spent three days in the grave and not just a fish to save a multitude even greater than Nineveh. When Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, it was doing something similar to Jesus who is building for us a new Jerusalem as our eternal home. When Hosea married an unfaithful, whoring wife whom he, count, uh, whom he continued to pursue in love, he was showing us the heart of Jesus who does the same for his unfaithful bride, the church. The Bible is about Jesus. In every story of the Old Testament, we're asking the question, where's Jesus? How does it reveal Jesus? How does it show Jesus? How does it point us to Jesus? Because the entirety of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is about Jesus. So if you want one take-home from verses 17 and 18, here's the take-home. Jesus and the Bible go together. It's all about Jesus. He didn't come to abolish the front two-thirds of the Bible. He came to fulfill it. To bring it to its intended purpose. The Bible is about Jesus. Now here's the second thing he means with that word fulfilled. And it's really just taking us a step deeper into the first thing. Not only is the Bible about Jesus, the Bible is all about Jesus' work. 
It's all about Jesus' work. In other words, it's all about the the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, It doesn't just point us to the person of Jesus. It points us to the work of Jesus. It points us to the gospel of Jesus. Now, if we're just going to give a shorthand sort of definition for the gospel, we might say it like this. The good news of Jesus is Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. That's shorthand for the good news of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. Now, just like you find the person of Jesus in the Old Testament, you also find the work of Jesus in the Old Testament. You find the gospel, Jesus' righteousness, given to us by faith in the Old Testament. I love how J.C. Ryle, the old Anglican bishop, how he said it. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. So, so it's back there. Like in the Old Testament, the good news of Jesus is there. Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. Let me just go to the book of Romans to show you this really quickly. In, in Romans, you can flip over if you'd like. Here's how Paul starts the book of Romans, starts his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, when Paul thinks of the gospel, he sees it in the Old Testament. He sees God promising through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures the good news of Jesus. This is how Paul saw the Old Testament as containing the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. Now in Romans chapter 1 through uh, through chapter 3, the first three chapters of Romans, if you just want to kind of condense it down to its basic point, what Paul is saying in the first three chapters of Romans is humanity, you, me, the whole lot of us, all of humanity has lost its righteousness. Now, righteousness is a big biblical word to say we've lost our presentability before God. We've lost our acceptance before God. We're no longer approved by God. After the sin of our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, every human being has lived under a banner. And on that banner was written the word, rejected by God. That's that's every single one of us. This is part of what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 3, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been weighed and found wanting. We've lost our righteousness. We've lost our presentability. Over our life now in big neon letters is the word reject, or the the phrase rejected by God. Then you get to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And this is what Paul says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or be made righteous in God's sight. For by works of the law, no human being will be made righteous, will be justified in God's sight. In other words, Paul's saying we all need a new verdict over our life. We all need the words on the banner over our life to change. It needs to go from rejected to approved. We all need that. We all want that. We all have to have it, right? But but he's saying in in the first part of, of Romans 3 verse 20, he's saying that there's no amount of law keeping, 
There's no amount of good living that will change the verdict. We all need the verdict change, but, but what we need is beyond our capacity to achieve. He, he's saying, for by works of the law, by, by doing enough good things, acquiring enough righteous deeds in our life, by works of the law, no human being will be justified and made righteous in his sight. Then Paul goes on. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's, the, that's one of the reasons God has given us the law is to show us that we're actually sinful. That, that God doesn't look at us and say, you know what, that's a really good guy. That's not the way God sees humanity. That written over their life is rejected. That, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, one of my friends says it this way. He says, God didn't give you the law, like the commandments. Do this, don't do that. God didn't give us the commandments and then say, keep them so that you can be saved. That's, that's not the reason God's given us the law. Rather, God gave us the law so that we'd realize that we can't keep it and that we need to be saved. That, that's why God has given you the law, so that you would realize when you look at the law, oh my God, there's no way I can do that. I could never have enough righteous deeds. I could never live to, to that standard perfectly. That, that's the reason God's given us the law. Then you get to verse 21. But now, but now, in this time, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, Paul is saying now Jesus has showed up. And with Jesus, there is a righteousness of God that we need. Jesus has showed up. He has perfectly kept every last command. Everything God said do, Jesus did. Everything God said don't do, Jesus didn't do. He, he fulfilled the law perfectly. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although, now listen to this phrase, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Paul is saying that that gospel, Jesus' righteousness given to us through faith, he's saying that is there, that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It, that the law and the prophets contain that gospel, that they are preaching, making promises of that gospel. Now, let me just show you this in the Old Testament, a couple of uh, illustrations of this. In Genesis chapter 15, the Bible says that Abraham believed God, but believed in the provision of God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So for Abraham, the verdict changed. Written over his life was rejected, he had lost his presentability. He had lost his righteousness, right? Rejected was the word written over his life. But, but he got his righteousness back. Like, like the, the verdict changed. He went from rejected to approved by God, presentable to God, secure in the presence of God. Now, how did that happen? The Bible is clear in Genesis 15. It wasn't because Abraham started working like this. Let me do enough good things to, to change the verdict. It wasn't that. No, he trusted in God's provision. He believed God in the provision that God had made, and it was credited to him. It was given to him as righteousness. That, that gospel, Jesus' righteousness given to us through faith, is in the Old Testament. Maybe the best illustration is um, Isaiah chapter 53. Starting in verse 5, Isaiah says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've lost our righteousness. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, the suffering servant, upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, with the New Testament, we know, uh, we know who was stabbed in the side for our sin. We know who was crushed upon the cross in our place for our sin. We know who endured the world's hostility so that we could have peace with God. We know whose wounds bring about our healing. We know it's Jesus, right? We know that. That Jesus is the one who has done that. Then you get to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of God the Father to crush God the Son in our place. He put him, God the Father put him, God the Son to grief. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53. And through him, through Jesus, many will be made righteous. There's the gospel in the Old Testament. Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to abolish them. Why would I abolish them? They're about me. They're about my work. He means, when he says, I've come to fulfill them, he means that I have come to live the life that the law of God requires, that you didn't live and you couldn't live. I've come to live that life, and I've come to endure the, le- the, the death that the law of God requires because of your sin. Like the death that, that, that you deserve, I have come to endure that death so that now through faith, my righteousness can become your righteousness. Jesus is saying that that is all back there in the Old Testament. That the whole Bible, it, it's about me. It's about my saving work. It's about the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness given to us by faith. That's Jesus' work. Now the next two verses, Jesus' warning. This is verses 18 and 19. Jesus is warning. It starts with therefore in verse 19. Therefore. So that's looking back. It's connected to verses 17 and 18. In light of Jesus not coming to abolish the Old Testament, in light of Jesus not coming to abolish the law, to abolish the prophets, in light of him coming to fulfill the Old Testament, in light of Jesus validating the Old Testament down to the single letter, the smallest mark of the Old Testament, in light of that, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is happening here? Jesus, in, this, in these two verses, he is calling us, us to a life of discipleship, a life of following him, a life of radical obedience. And just to be clear, we don't obey in an effort to save ourselves. Jesus saves us and then we obey. Then we come and follow Jesus. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's looking at his people and saying, now I want you to come and follow me. I want you to commit to a life of radical discipleship, a life of radical obedience. And then he shows us the way to greatness. He says, do you you want to be great in the kingdom of of God? You you don't have to be a somebody to be great. You don't have to accomplish all these things in your life to be great in the kingdom of God. If you want to know what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like, it looks like simple obedience, faithfulness to Jesus. That's what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like, a willingness to take Jesus at his word and obey him. Isn't that an amazing thing? The history books of heaven are not going to be like the history books of this world. 
The history books of heaven are going to tell the stories of simple saints living simple lives of faithful obedience to Jesus. He says, this is, this is what greatness in my kingdom looks like. Conversely, on the other hand, if you want to be least in the kingdom of God, here's how you become least in the kingdom of God. You relax these commands, and then you teach others to relax these commands. That's how you become least in the kingdom of God. So we need to think about what that word relax means. We, we need to think that word through. To relax the, comma uh, the commands of God means to treat the commands as flexible. When we take the commands of God, to relax them means that we bend those commands to fit the life we want to live rather than adjusting our life to, to fit the commands. Th that's relaxing the commands loosening the commands. And, and I want to finish by talking about the two ways that we do that. There, there's two primary ways that we relax the commands of God. Uh, two ways. The first one is obvious. The second one is less obvious. The first way is through what we might call relativism. Relativism. Relativism is the cultural air that we breathe. It is so pervasive that we've sucked it in without even knowing it. It is, it is this basic way of thinking and seeing that says no one can determine what's right or wrong. There are no absolutes. And ironically, that's a very absolute statement, isn't it? There are no absolutes. Everything is subjective. To find right or wrong, you have to go look within yourself. You have to determine what's right or wrong for you. Who is God to say what we should and shouldn't do? That is relativism. And that is everywhere. And that is one way that we loosen the commands of God. Relativism, what it does is it subjects the commands of God to our approval. It's, it's a way of, of, of looking at God and saying, um, God, how, how about rather than me living under your authority, like you get to set the rules, how about rather than doing that, how about we form a partnership? Let's, we'll, we'll together make the rules. So you tell me what you think, God, and I'll tell you if I approve or if this one's going to get vetoed. Th that's relativism. It's a way of shrinking down the commands of God. If you want to see it in picture form, think about Luke 15 in the Bible. It's the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells a parable, a story of the prodigal son. It's, it's really the story of two sons. But the younger son is the prodigal. Rather than living under the father's rules, that the younger son runs. Like, he, he looks at the father, and the father in the story represents God. He looks at the father and says, um, hey, dad, the, the days of me following your rules, you telling me what to do, th those days are over. Th th these days are gone. I'm going to go, and I'm going to set the rules. I I'm going to be the one who determines what's right or wrong. I'm going to be the one who, who makes these sort of judgments. Uh, for the prodigal, for the, for the relativist, Freedom is found in breaking the rules, in setting their own rules, shrinking the, the commands of God down to what they think the commands ought to be. That's the heart of relativism. Now, I think it's just worth noting before we move on that it is possible to reject on a confessional level relativism. No, no I do not agree with that. I am not going to veto what God said. I'm not, no, no. This is not a partnership. God, God gets to set the rules. All the while living like a functional relativist. So we can confessionally say, say no to it while functionally living it. So just think about, think about your life. Anytime we're basing the decisions on our life on how we feel, on what suits us, 
on, on what would um, be the most convenient in our life. That is functional relativism. That is saying, God, you're not going to set the rule in this moment. I'm going to set the rule. I'm going to be the one that, that says what's right and wrong. And Jesus is saying that's a way of relaxing his commandments. And if you do that, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of God. Don't, don't do that, Jesus is saying. No to that. Don't shrink down. Don't loosen, don't loosen my commandments. So, so relativism is one way that, that we reduce or that we shrink down, that we relax the commands. And here's the other way. It's the, the less obvious way of relaxing the commands of God. One way is relativism. The other way is legalism legalism. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this, Jesus's righteousness given to us through faith. That's the gospel. Legalism says this, Jesus's righteousness is given to us through good works. Jesus's righteousness comes to us, is given to us, not through faith, but, but through good works. That, that's legalism. It's our good works earn God's grace. Our good works put God in a debt that now he has to give us things in return. That's legalism. And this is what Jesus is addressing in verse 20 when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, now we ought to look at that and, and put ourselves in the shoes of a first century here. Because if you were in the crowd that day and Jesus said that, you, there would have been a collective gasp in the crowd. Jesus, are you serious? Did you really just, it would be the equivalent of Jesus coming to us and saying, unless you can shoot a basketball better than Steph Curry, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you can throw a football better than Tom Brady, you're, you're done. Unless you can compose a sheet of music better than Bach himself, you've got no hope. That's the equivalent. Like the, the scribes and the Pharisees were the spiritually elite they were the straight-laced rule keepers. They scoured the Old Testament. They found 248 do's, God saying do this. They found 365 don'ts, God saying don't do this. And they were committed, like really committed to keeping all of those. Like they, they were serious about it. I mean, th this, is, this is who they were. And Jesus is saying that your righteousness is going to have to exceed them. Like, like it's going to have to be better than theirs. Like if you're, if you're in the crowd that day, you're just throwing up your hands and you're saying, Jesus, then that's hopeless. There's no way that's ever going. I am never going to be better than they are. I'm never going to do it. So, so what is Jesus' point here? What, what's he doing here? Jesus isn't saying, hey, do you see the scribes and the Pharisees? Um, to get into heaven, what you're going to need to do is to do better than, than them. You're going to have to live better. You're going to have to do better. You, you just need to be better than them. If you can, That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's, he's saying in this moment, hey, do you see the scribes and the Pharisees? Do you see their righteousness? Your righteousness has to be of an altogether different kind. It's got to be of a different kind. If you're depending on that sort of righteousness, you are done. Like the righteousness you need has to far exceed. It's got to be of a whole different kind than, than their righteousness. See, here, here was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They shrunk the law of God down, the commands of God down to what was humanly possible. It was all about the letter of the law, not, not the spirit of the law. It was all external. That They were minimalists. It was what is the least we can do to fulfill the letter of the law. 
That's how they operated. And then once they started fulfilling in that superficial, external way the law of God, their external law keeping was a way for them to manipulate God to put God in their debt. So I superficially fulfill the law of God, and now God owes me something. Now I've secured the righteousness that I want. So again, if you want this in picture form, think back to Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. The younger brother, the prodigal, he shrinks the commands. He relaxes the commands by breaking the rules. But the older brother, he relaxes the commands by keeping the rules, by shrinking the, the, the rules of God, the commands of God down to what he could physically and humanly do, and then putting God in his debt for doing them. That, that's how he shrunk. That's how he re reduced the rules. His obedience didn't, it didn't spring from a love for God. Right? The love of the Father in, in Luke 15, it didn't spring from the love of the Father. It was a way to manipulate the Father to get what he wanted, namely the inheritance. Right? That, that's what's happening in Luke 15. And Jesus tells that parable, Luke 15, story of the prodigal son, he tells that parable for the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he tells, he's telling them, your righteousness will not work. He's telling the scribes and the Pharisees, those people who are following the rules so that they can whip out their resume to God and to say to God, man, aren't I doing good? Aren't you lucky, God, that you have me on your team? He's telling them to, to people who are seeing the world that way. Rather than a poverty of spirit, the scribes and Pharisees were rich in spirit. Rather than coming to God and saying, God, I can't, I can't. I'm going to bank on Jesus who can. Rather than saying that, rather than coming in poverty of spirit, they were rich in spirit. They were coming with their good lives. They were coming with their resumes, and they were clinging to their resume. They were saying, this is the way I'm going to regain my righteousness. And Jesus is saying in verse 20, that sort of righteousness will ruin you. Your righteousness better be better than that. It better be a whole different kind than that. Because their righteousness is going to be of no help to them. Imagine yourself for a moment standing before God one day and heaven and hell are in the ba balance. It's judgment day. He heaven and hell are in the balance. Your eternal ruin or your eternal flourishing are hanging in this moment. If your plan in that moment is to whip out your resume of righteousness and say, God, look at how good I am. I mean, look, look at all these things that I've done. God, there's a whole list of them. I mean, look, look at all these. Look at the way I've done this. Look at the way I've done that. Look, look, look at my life, God. If your strategy in that moment, if what you're banking on in that moment is your resume, your righteousness to be regained through your doing, Jesus says you will be forever ruined because your righteousness has to be of a whole different kind. It's got to far exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is, this is his point in the rest of this chapter. Like if you keep reading in chapter 5, he is saying superficial law keeping is of no value to me. It, it, your resume of righteousness will not work. He goes on, he's just trying to correct this way of thinking. In verse 21, he says, hey, it's not a matter of externals. He says, you've heard of it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and those who murder will be liable to judgment. He, he goes on to say, but, but no, I'm telling you, it's a matter of the heart. 
It's not a matter of the letter of the law, but the Spirit. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone in here pass that test? Or look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. The Pharisees and scribes thought, we are killing that commandment, command number seven, if we physically don't commit adultery. But he's saying, no, it's never a matter of externals. It goes all the way to the heart. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The rest of chapter five is meant to make us put our hand over our mouth and to say, oh no, I've broken every one of the commands. My, my resume is of no value. No one will be proved righteous based on their works. No one has lived well enough to do that. It's meant to make us think, I need a righteousness that exceeds external conformity. This is something bigger and of a different kind than the scribes and Pharisees. It's meant to drive us to God with the poverty of spirit where we come to God bringing nothing but our need and we look up to God and say, God, I need God, I need. It's meant to bring us to God with the empty hands of faith, knowing that the only thing we bring to God is our need for rescue. That's what chapter 5 is meant to do. And to all those who come to God like that, Jesus says, finally, finally, poverty of spirit. Now this is where we start. Finally, for everyone who comes like that, throwing their life on the work and resume of Jesus, renouncing their own resume, giving up on their own good works, for everyone who comes to me like that with the empty hands of faith, Jesus says, welcome. Welcome. You're forever mine. Welcome. My righteousness will now be credited to your account through faith. Welcome. I'm going to give you now a new heart. I'm going to fill your heart with my spirit. And with that new heart and the empowerment of the spirit, you're going to have new capacities now. Not just to satisfy the letter of the law, but now you can actually walk in the spirit of the law. Out of that remade and empowered heart, there's going to spring up out of you a new righteousness. This is what Jesus is getting after. So Stonegate, will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment for the Lord to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Why don't you ask the Lord to speak to you right now? Just ask the Lord, what do you, what do you want me to hear from you in this text? I think there's maybe two responses that would be very appropriate today. One is to ask yourself, am I banking on Jesus' resume or my own? What am, what am I banking on? One of the stories that we have heard over and over, I heard it again last week, last Sunday after church. One of the stories we've heard over and over throughout um, Stonegate's life is people coming in and realizing just like the scribes and Pharisees, I have been living with a false gospel. 
Jesus' righteousness will be credited to my account, given to me based on my good works. And, and I've just realized that my resume won't work. And although I thought I was a Christian, I wasn't. I, I was a scribe and a Pharisee. I was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, as if doing these things would secure my righteousness before God. And I just wonder how many of us, that's our story. All of our life, we have been banking on our right living to secure our righteousness, our approval, to change that verdict over our life. And God is reminding us today that that righteousness is of no value. If you're banking on that righteousness, it will ruin you forever. I wonder how many of us need to, for the first time, actually turn to God banking on Jesus' life, lived for you, his death, that he died for you, his resurrection from the dead. How many of us need that today? Have you trusted in Jesus' record? And maybe the other question would be, what, what next steps of obedience is Jesus calling you toward? What's the thing, the, the one thing in front of you today that Jesus is saying, this is, this is in front of you? This is what I've given you a new heart and empowered you with my spirit to do? Father, would you give us clarity on these things? God, would you show us? Would you speak to us through your spirit now? God, help us to be open and pliable and help us to have ears that would hear and hearts that could receive. Help us to respond to you right now in this moment in the way that you would see fit. And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.